My advice to young people is focus on the purpose and the values of the organization you're going to, the character of the people in the organization. Forget about the job title, forget about the salary, and focus on the things that really matter and that are enduring, because those things aren't enduring. You are listening to On Point, a show about veteran business leaders, entrepreneurs, executives, financiers, and social innovators who made a name for themselves in the military and then took the private sector by storm. This show is hosted by the founder of the Old Grad Club, Eddie Kang. This episode features an interview with Robert Allen McDonald. Bob is the former secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs and retired chairman, president, and chief executive officer of the Procter & Gamble Company, and a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, class of 1975. He currently serves as the April and J. Graham Fellow at the George W. Bush Institute. On this episode, Bob shares his invaluable insights around leadership, innovation, and empathy garnered from his service in the Army, his three-decade-long career at the Procter & Gamble Company, and his tenure as the Secretary of the Department of Veteran Affairs. I really enjoyed my interview with Bob because his perspective on finding purpose through service was very relatable to some of my own experiences. Before we jump into it, feel free to check us out on LinkedIn and Instagram at Old Grad Club and online at oldgradclub.com. Now, please enjoy this interview with Bob McDonald. You've been successful both in the military as well as in the private sector, as well as in the public sector. Like, has there been any common theme as to like why you wanted to choose what you were going to do with your life next? Because the amount of success that you've always had has opened probably tons of doors and you've been super selective about what you've wanted to do and, and the value that you wanted to provide. How did you go about thinking about that? Well, Eddie, I, I, I don't consider myself successful. I consider myself a, uh, a work in progress. And, um, uh, but I think the common theme uh, throughout the thread of continuity throughout the various experiences I've had is uh, my purpose, the purpose uh, to improve the lives of the people that uh, I can touch. and. Um, that desire to improve lives uh, led me to want to go to West Point. It led me into the infantry in the 82nd Airborne Division. It led me uh, to the Procter & Gamble Company, whose global purpose is to improve the lives of the world's consumers. And uh, it led me uh, to the Department of Veterans Affairs. So, I mean, that that's the consistency. And I think I recognize a very young age, probably as a Boy Scout or uh, during some of the church organizations I was a member of, that I really enjoyed helping other people and I, and I wanted to make a difference in that way. Let's get into our first segment. The AAR, or for our non-military listeners, the After Action Review. In this segment, we talk about our guests' personal journey and the decisions that they made, both in and out of the military, that led them to this point in their career and life. And you, you talk about this a lot, about your, your North Star, your, your idea of being able to help others through every single thing that you do. Um, and, and maybe it was, you know, growing up in the church or whether it was the boy Scouts, but at what point in your life do you think, and what age do you think that, that whether it's a a flip that kind of a switch that just kind of flipped on or something that gradually developed over time, can you talk a little bit about, um, how that came to be? Because that seems to be the driving thing that allows you to push yourself to the excellence that's necessary to reach the top of whatever field that you're in? Well, it's, it's, it's a great question because I think rather than a, um, a flip of a switch, it was an evolution. 
And I don't think it was a deliberate evolution. In other words, it was rather fortuitous. So um, as a youngster, uh, as being a member of a church group that would go out and do service projects uh, when I was young, uh, being a Boy Scout and, and working on um, all of the things, uh, merit badges, service projects necessary for Boy Scouts, uh, but then uh, applying to West Point for the first time uh, at the age of 11 uh, in sixth grade, uh, obviously very, very early uh, in the process <laughs> at a time where I was ineligible. Um, but my and, and applying to Donald Rumsfeld, apparently. Well, Donald Rumsfeld was my congressman at the time in the north, north, northwest suburb of Chicago. And uh, fortunately, Congressman Rumsfeld, uh, later Secretary Rumsfeld, um, just kept encouraging me. He said, you know, this is great. Keep applying every year. Keep building up your file. Um, keep taking the test. He gave the civil service exam in order to choose who he would nominate. And, um, and it just, it just evolved that way. And, and of course, going to West Point to me was a, a dream of a lifetime. Um, I, you know, I grew up in Gary, Indiana. I grew up in a house that was across the Calumet river, uh, from the U S steel mill, um, West Point and the military opened up opportunities for me. I wouldn't have otherwise had. Yep. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I grew up in uh, the northern suburbs of Chicago. And so I, I, I've driven past Gary many times. Um, and, you know, people have their thoughts about Gary, but it's, that's home. That's where you, you grew up and that's home base for you, I guess. Uh, it, it was. It was where I was born. Um, having lived all over the world with the Procter & Gamble Company and with the military, uh, home now is wherever my family is. We live in Orlando, Florida, in the winter and in the summer, we live in Cincinnati, Ohio. But um, I, I had a, a wonderful childhood, a wonderful childhood. I had loving parents, uh, very spiritual parents, uh, diligent parents. And um, uh, while we didn't have uh, a great deal of money, um, you know, we tried to take advantage of every opportunity that we had. And um, the love of and support and values that my parents and grandparents gave me were very, very important. That, that's good to hear. And it sounds like the household that you grew up in, I mean, the tenacity that you went after that, um, the the nomination at 11 years old, it sounds like you, there was something in like young Bob McDonald already when, you know, before that age, which is incredible. Well, I kind of, I, I kind of marched to a different drummer because uh, remember what was going on when I was 11 years old, this is 1964, uh, the Vietnam War, uh, the military was not um, popular at the time. Uh, in fact, it, uh, it reminds me when, when people say to me today, thank you for your service. Um, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, where were you in 1964 or even 1972? In 1972, I marched in President Nixon's inaugural parade. And it is not an exaggeration to say that we were spit on, that, that we were had things thrown at us. Uh, the military, you know, it's it, the military fights our wars, but the military doesn't decide when to go to war. And it's often such a, um, a misunderstanding that military people like war. They don't. They're the ones who get killed. And uh, I'm, MacArthur captured come, some of that thought in his duty on our country speech. Um, but, you know, I, I just wish that uh, people would realize our military, uh, albeit necessary for national defense, really doesn't change its purpose. It doesn't decide when to go to war. Yeah, absolutely. 
And maybe we can fast forward a little bit to to your years at West Point. I mean, obviously you were really successful, top 2% in your class. Again, I'm work in progress, Eddie. I'm, I would never say I was successful. I mean, well, I mean, that's what I kind of got out of reading some of the, I, I forgot which HBS case study, but when you were, you know, I think your plebe year, you were two or 300 in your class and eventually you worked yourself. And I think one of the funniest things um, hearing it is that if you had more time, you would have probably been at the top of the class. Well, I, 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 I believe in Vince Lombardi's statement that he never lost a football game, but sometimes time ran out. Um, so yeah, you're right. I mean, I was a plebe. Uh, I had had a great high school uh, education. I, I worked on an IBM 360 computer uh, in the 1969, 1970, 1971. So uh, this was this was a good education. And I came to West Point, and I in those days uh, they posted your grades uh, in the Sally Port. You'd go in the Sally Port, the tunnel. They'd have your grades up, and your class number was there. That's the only way you knew it was you. And I can remember going there after the first uh, first few months and seeing that I was 200 in the class. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I've never been 200 in anything. I better giddy up. So uh, I, I, I started to work harder. And I also, um, I think, started to catch on a little bit more to this idea of being graded every day in every class. It's a it's a hard it's an unusual concept. You have to get used to it. And uh, as you say, I, I graduated 13 out of uh, about 867 or so. And, um, you know, time ran out. So <laughs> John McMurray our, in our class graduated one and he deserved it. I don't think he was under much threat from me. Well, it takes a lot of work to get um, up to the top of the class at West Point. And, you know, people talk about how it's where, you know, people that are valedictorians or top of their high school come and really get a, a humble experience. But um, you were able to come, you know, from from growing up in Gary to West Point um, and really, you know, achieve a lot of success there. Can you talk a little bit about after West Point um, joining the military? You, you know, you branched infantry, you head to Fort Bragg. What did you what were you thinking? there? Like, what were the goals after that? Because like West Point gives you a lot of very clear goals. Like, how do I rank academically, physically, militarily? I don't know if it's changed from two years. But then you get into the military and obviously you, you know, you want to achieve success. What was success for you at that point in your life? Well, I, I as you say, I, I branched uh, infantry. I was the second person in my class. Uh, number 12, uh, Mike Wimmer also went infantry. I was 13. I went infantry. Um, I chose what I thought was the, uh, the tip of the spear unit in the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, the choice was was frankly between the 82nd or the 1st of 509th in Vicenza. Uh, I chose the 82nd. Um, and I went to airborne school, ranger school. Uh, when I got to the 82nd, jungle warfare school, Arctic warfare school, desert warfare school, all with my unit. And um, my point of view was very simple, which is if you're going to be an army officer, you go to West Point. If you're going to be an army officer, you're in the infantry. If you're going to be in the infantry, you're an airborne ranger, etc. You're going to be in the second airborne division, you know, you, you don't want to do anything uh, second best and not put your entire self into it. So I did. And uh, while I was uh, on active duty in the 82nd airborne division, I, I took the officer advanced course by correspondence. Now th this is kind of weird because there was no computers in those days, at least not personal computers. So uh, I would punch cards. I had a sponge and then cards, and I would punch holes in these Hollerinth cards, 
mail them in to Fort Benning and they would respond. And I graduated um, at the top of my correspondence course class in the officer advanced course. Um, so when I went to branch and I said, hey, look, at, uh, I want to be a light infantryman the majority of my career. In those days, infantrymen were generally mechanized infantrymen. And we had a lot of forces in uh, Germany. So I said, I'd love to go the um, the Marine Corps advanced course. And uh, I never forget the assignments officer said, well, well, we don't do that. And I said, I know I drove from Fort Bragg to the Pentagon to give you six months, nine months, 12 months. I don't remember how long notice that I'd like to go to the Marine Corps advanced course. Could you please figure it out? And I said, whatever you do, don't, don't send me to the armor advanced course. Cause I had an army unit on army orientation training, which I think is now called CTLT. And, um, I didn't enjoy it. I would spend all my time in the motor pool. And um, my joke is I didn't study thermodynamics to, to spend time in the motor pool. Um, so I didn't enjoy armor. And I, of course, I got orders to the armor advance course. And I, I, I called the guy and I said, hey, look, it, you know, I wanted to go to the Marine Corps advance course. He said, why? Well, I, I said, we don't do that. And I wrote down armor advance course. And I said, yeah, you wrote it down because I told you I didn't want to do that. So, um, it didn't work out the way I wanted it to. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like a lot of things did though. And while you were in the military, obviously accomplished all these great things. At what point were you thinking, you know, I've, I've accomplished a lot in the military. I want to have a go at the private sector and see what that entails as well. Well, it was, it was, I have tremendous respect for, for people who spend their career in the military. What I decided after that um, interchange with uh, Milperson and the order getting orders, the armor advance course was I probably wasn't going to um, realize my full potential um, if I stayed in the military. That the military is great, uh, it's wonderful for many people, but um, I probably wasn't going to get to my full potential because I wanted I wanted to do things differently, and um, there wasn't there wasn't a place for that at least not for me at that time. Well, and and one of the things that we hear consistently is like everybody, when you're in the military, you transition at some point. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, early or late in the career, everybody needs to find a job. And, and you as being the, you know, the eighth secretary of the VA, like you probably know that better than anybody. Um, but when, so, you know, one thing that I kind of wanted to better understand is you left the military and I can't really put myself back into what it was like at that time, that, that transition, um, as far as what industries were booming and all these different things, but you chose to go to P&G, Procter & Gamble that had um, a reputation at the time for not necessarily like bringing people in at the level. And you would probably, you know, as an airborne ranger, you know, had accomplished all these things in the military. It sounds like you had to start at the, the lowest kind of the low in the organization. And, and can you tell us a little bit about that and what you were feeling at the time? Sure. Uh, I interviewed, I, I wrote to maybe 150, 200 companies, uh, I interviewed with uh, maybe 30, 35, 40. I had an engineering undergraduate degree. Uh, I had passed the professional, you know, the uh, professional engineer's entry exam, which is called the engineer and training exam. But I had an MBA. Uh, I, I should have said this, that after I had completed the officer advanced course, correspondence course, I then did an MBA at night and on the weekends. Um, and I, I felt like uh, I, needed, I needed an organization where I could feel the same sense of purpose and values that I felt at West Point and that I felt in the Army. Um, and, and for me, the Procter & Gamble company had that purpose and had those values. And 
I realized, uh, fortunately, that that there's nothing wrong with starting over again. I mean, when we graduate from West Point, as you say, if I graduate 13th in my class, I start over again as a second lieutenant. You get to Ranger School, they rip off your rank, um, and you start over again. I started over again at uh, Procter & Gamble. At that time, we, um, we only hired at the entry level. We hire some positions higher now, but, but generally at the entry level. And, um, and that was a rude awakening. I, I worked for a, um, uh, you know, I worked for people who had uh, maybe been fraternity presidents, but uh, certainly had not taken an airborne infantry battalion uh, as the assistant S3 to the Arctic Circle and back. Yeah, that's, it's, it's pretty wild. And I think it's a lesson too, because as we, you know, obviously on with the old grad club, we talked to with a lot of vets that are transitioning and people think about what they want to do. Um, it's, it's a testament to know that, you know, you do kind of play this game of shoots and ladders sometimes of reaching to the the top of a different organization or an industry. And you kind of come you know, and you start, start not necessarily at the bottom, but you, you know, you have to rebuild. Yeah. My, my, my advice to young people is focus on the purpose and the values of the organization you're going to the character of the people in the organization forget about the job title, forget about the salary, uh, you know, and, and focus on the things that really matter and that are enduring because those things aren't enduring. Well, and that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you as well, because you, you know, are, I've heard you say that people ask you all the time, like, what does it take to be the CEO of Procter and Gamble? Like one of the most historic companies in America. And, you, you know, you spent 33 years climbing up through that organization, probably doing all sorts of different jobs all over the world. What you're, you know, you have, you have a very great answer to that, but, you know, and I, I'll let you kind of say your answer to that. But, I, you know, my question would be like, what does it take to be the CEO? But I, I always find what you say to this is uh, fascinating. Yeah, I, well, my point of view, Eddie, is don't fixate on a particular position in a particular company. Um fixate on a purpose. You know, I was, while, while 33 years climbing the ladder, as you talked about, sounds, um, uh, somewhat mechanical and, um, and, and now in retrospect, uh, may look that way. Uh, I didn't feel that way at all. I mean, I just, I continually was challenged and I worked hard, uh, to, uh, build the business and build the organization during these challenges. And then suddenly they gave me a new challenge and one challenge was in the United States. The next challenge was in Toronto and Canada. The next challenge was in Manila in the Philippines. The next challenge was in Kobe, Japan after the earthquake. The next challenge was running a global business from Brussels. The next challenge was being chief operating officer of the company. The next challenge was being CEO. The next challenge was being CEO and chairman. So, um, you know, my, my point of view is uh, if an organization can continue to give you challenging experiences and if those challenging experiences continue to grow you, then um, why switch? Why switch companies? Yeah, no, that's absolutely um, that makes a lot of sense. And out of those places all sound fascinating, by the way, to, to run a business. What, what was your favorite uh, spot that you were? I guess in some ways stationed at with uh, PNG. Well, I, I I love them all. Let me briefly uh, give you an insight from each. So, in um, in Toronto, uh, I I I would argue in the Procter and Gamble company, working in Canada is a tremendous uh, first international assignment for an American 
because the one thing a Canadian doesn't want to be mistaken for is being an American. And the one thing you don't, the one thing you don't say in Canada is, well, here's how we do it in the United States. You know, countries that are, that share long borders and that have a lot of history between them, Canada, United States, Austria and Germany, um, I could go on, Japan, Korea. Um, these are the most uh, fraught culturally. And you as the leader have to be uh, hypersensitive with tremendous empathy to make sure that you're respectful of that culture and, um, and not trying to uh, project your culture uh, on them. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that as a Canadian, when I was there, uh, I would be offended by things Americans would say to me, like, you know, uh, they'd show up at the border with snow skis in the middle of summer or something like that. Um, you know, so in the Philippines, that was a great experience because uh, so many people in the Philippines live in abject poverty. And it was a real opportunity to live amongst the Philippine people and understand what it's like uh, to suffer from that poverty. And then, of course, from my standpoint as business leader, what can I do to help raise them out of poverty? In terms of Japan, um, very um, amazing culture. We arrived there right after the Kobe earthquake, the week after the Kobe earthquake, and watching the Japanese people work together to rebuild their country. If, if you remember the Kobe earthquake, there was a famous picture of an of an expressway that was literally laying on its side, and uh, and the and the Japanese people just rebuilt the whole thing in a very short period of time. Tremendous unity of purpose there. Um, and Brussels, uh, Brussels was a great place to run a global business because in your time zone you could catch the United States uh, six hours earlier, and you could catch Japan. I think it's eight hours later, and it was a great place to run a global business. So we really loved everywhere we live. On to the next segment, the sit rep or the situation report. In this segment, we'll dive into what our guest is focused on today and how their vision is transforming the future of industry and society. Transitioning a little bit, um, when it comes to all the different positions that you've had in Procter & Gamble, um, what were some of the hardest decisions that you had to make while you were there in your different you know, billets almost that you, that you had? I think the hardest decision is, is whenever you have to um, fire someone or whenever you have to give someone bad news. And um, that's always the hardest because you're not only affecting them, you're affecting their family, their relatives, potentially their income, their livelihood, their self-esteem. Uh, these are the hardest decisions. I mean, leadership is at one time a blessing uh, because you're given responsibility for someone's life. It's also a tremendous obligation to make sure that you, that you do it with uh, the kind of care that's needed. It was always my goal that if someone wasn't working out in a position to have them recognize that before I had to tell them. In other words, give them enough daily feedback so that uh, they knew they weren't succeeding before I had to tell them, hey, you're not succeeding, we're gonna have to move you on. Um, I, when I speak to large groups, I oftentimes will say, okay, everybody who gives their subordinates sufficient feedback, please raise your hand. And every hand in the room goes up. Of course, I give sufficient feedback to my subordinates. Uh, then the next question is, 
how many of you in this room uh, receive sufficient feedback from your superior and no hand goes up? The point is, everybody believes they're not being given sufficient feedback, even though they may be. And it's always a surprise uh, sometimes when someone's not working out, but you work hard as a leader to try to make sure that the person has enough feedback that they know they're not working out. They're unhappy, so they want to switch jobs uh, before you have to switch. Them. Yep, that's a, those are great lessons learned. It's it's interesting um, for a lot of the listeners. We've you know served in the military, and there's like a kind of like a structural way to to do feedback. Um, and oftentimes in companies, it's like once a year. There's like a 360 or something like that that you do. But did did any of your time like leading troops in the 82nd? Um, and, and going through kind of that process of providing feedback or leading, did that carry over at all? Or how did you, how did you equate like leadership in the military versus leadership at Procter and Gamble? Well, I think, I think those of us who've been in the military, um, are blessed that we've had experiences leading in the military because particularly in small units, uh, in the A2nd Airborne Division at the, in those days, uh, most of my soldiers lived in one building in bunk beds, um, I tucked them in at night. I woke them up in the morning. I had an intimate relationship with every one of them. I knew their families. I knew their birthdays. Uh, I knew their creditors. Um, that kind of intimacy uh, leads to trust, and trust is an essential quality of leadership. Um, the challenge is how do you achieve that uh, in the private sector, number one, and then how do you achieve that over a large organization? I mean, if if you're the CEO of the Procter & Gamble company of 120,000 people, or you're the secretary of the VA and you have 400,000 people, how do you achieve that same level of trust, that same level of intimacy? Um, it's a high bar, but once you've done it in the military, which, and in a small unit, um, you realize that that is the epitome of leadership, is, is having that trust and having that intimate relationship. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating because people... I, I talk to a lot of younger um, veterans that leave the military and when they're getting out, they are, you know, everybody kind of wants it all. Like you want the pay, you want the title, you want the company and you, you want the leadership as well. And what I often find like two to five years after leaving the military and trying to transition is one thing that everybody really misses is the leadership. And because sometimes there's not as many opportunities, frankly, to be intimate with people that you're working together to accomplish a mission with in the private sector, because the, it's, the organizations just aren't as big. But one thing that, um, but maybe Procter & Gamble, because it, I don't know how big of a company it was when you joined, um, but it's, you know, obviously it's one of the largest companies in the world today. Um, maybe it provides the ability to just have that many people to lead and be intimate with when it comes to achieving something. Well, it's, it, it. Um, that military experience, that intimate experience creates empathy, right? And a consumer goods company that's serving 5 billion people a day on the planet, you know, anybody, 5 billion people are using a P&G product. You've got to have that empathy or you can't, you can't design and build those brands. And then the company operates like a small company. So for example, um, I was the Tide brand manager in the United States. I had a team, a marketing team of about uh, four people, and we ran a multi-billion dollar business. And the company was more or less the investment banker for that brand group. So that was that was appealing to me because you maintain that um, nuclear team 
Um, but obviously that empathy that you, that you need and that you share uh, extends throughout, throughout the company. Um, you asked me how big was it when I joined. When I joined, the company was $10 billion in sales, global sales. When I retired, it was $85 billion in global sales. When I joined, we had, um, I think, about 30,000 people. When I retired, we had 120,000 people. When I joined, the stock price was $2.32, split adjusted. Today, the stock price is $135 a share. Sounds like, um, well, I mean, obviously, Procter & Gamble, it's one of the you know iconic household name brands, but... I, you know, I, I don't think people realize when you hear Procter and Gamble, like what that means, because there are so many brands under it. Um, and whether it's, I, I don't know if most of it's been through M&A or through like just, you know, or organically building these really um, kind of staple things that we all have in our houses. Um, we use the products every single day. And I think, you know, you tie, you tie this all to your mission of, of service um, and, and, you know, helping others. Um can can you talk about how you came to develop and understand how the value that Procter and Gamble was providing to both the U.S. and then eventually the world um, really impacted your motivation and your drive? Well, the brand, the brands, the company at, during my time had about three hundred brands globally, um, and um, generally, what I would do as a CEO or at any level that I was at is is when I would go to a country. The first thing I would do was to go into consumers' homes and watch them use our products. And the whole idea was to have a dialogue with them and to get insights of how I could make their life better. Then I generally would go to retail stores and watch people shop for our products. In those days, most of the shopping was done uh, in, in retail stores. Um, and one of the things you learn is, is again, you develop your empathy. So, for example, um, some of our brands we got through acquisition, some of the brands we developed. Um, no consumer is going to say to you, hey, look, at, I'm washing my floor with a mop and a bucket of water, and I'm taking your product spick and span or Mr. Clean and solubilizing it in the water and then wiping on the floor, but then I have to dry the floor. Why don't you guys take a, um, the technology you have in Pampers, put it on the end of a stick, and take the technology you have in Mr. Clean and put it in a little vessel that sprays in front of the Pampers and call it Swiffer. I mean, no consumer is going to do that, right? But you and the R&D organization, as you visit homes and as you become empathetic for what the need is, you can kind of make those connections. You know, there's a, a wonderful book by a guy named James Burke who taught at Cambridge called Connections. And he also did a television program in the 80s called Connections. Um, innovation, inventions are never used for what they're designed for in the end. So Burke's program may start with a ceramic mug in Delft in the Netherlands to keep beer cold in the Middle Ages because beer was the only way, the only thing you could drink in the Middle Ages to make sure you were drinking pasteurized water. That's why beer was so popular. But that same ceramic that kept that, kept that beer cold is the same ceramic that ended up making up tiles on the bottom of the space shuttle. And Burke 
And Burke and his program lead you from Delph all the way through the creation of the space shuttle. So a couple of few examples. Um, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone because he worked in a deaf school. He never expected we would carry cell phones in our pockets. Uh, Marconi invented the radio for two ships to communicate at sea. He never expected the radio to come on land. Thomas Watson, the founder of IBM, uh, said the U.S. may need two computers someday. Uh, at the time, the computer was taking this was used to take the census of the country using these punch cards that I used. Um, and he never thought we'd need more computers. So it's all of us bringing our diverse selves and our diverse experiences, our individualism to these ideas, building upon others' ideas that create uh, great inventions. So at Procter & Gamble Company and at the VA, one of the things I would purposely do is I deliberately put diverse groups of people together because diverse groups of people are more innovative than homogeneous groups of people. Yeah, I, I think that um, at least within the investor community that, that I work in, and a lot of people uh, really do believe that. And there's there that's why there's a huge push for a lot of the DNI or diversity and inclusion initiatives out there. But it's also fascinating to hear um, how how much innovate. Like it sounds like your mind, you know, there's management at large organizations like at Procter and Gamble, and then there's product. And it sounds like you also have a huge fire for just innovative product. Do you? Does your do you still think about things like like okay so you went from Procter and Gamble you were the CEO and then you went to the lead the, the VA and but like you still live in this world does your mind still kind of turn and churn and, and like think of innovative things all the time and and want to do things sure well I give you an example so um, when I left the Procter and Gamble company um, I did a couple of things uh, in between before the VA. One was I developed, uh, as CEO of Procter & Gamble, I developed an innovation um, uh, accelerator in Cincinnati called Centrifuge, uh, and that's still operating today. And the idea was, how do we attract entrepreneurs to the Cincinnati, greater Cincinnati region? How do we attract venture capital to the Cincinnati region? And uh, part of that was in the Procter & Gamble interest. We put up $25 million and it was matched by the community. We developed a fund of funds that we would invest in venture capitalists uh, who took a look at the businesses we were developing in Cincinnati. Now, the, the, the own interest in it was, of course, with those businesses developing in Cincinnati, Procter & Gamble could meet with those entrepreneurs often. We could actually test their businesses ideas for them. And oftentimes we'd buy their company or we'd invest in their company. So it was, it was in our self-interest, but, um, but Steve Case, for example, visited us from his um, uh, rise of the rest where he's trying to get innovation off the two coasts. Uh, we have it in Cincinnati and it's, and it's, it's community wide. Um, so, I mean, that was, that was a, a really important um aspect. And then of course, when I got to the VA, one of the, one, the VA is a, um, the VA is the prime mover of medical innovation in our country. Uh, VA spends about $2 billion a year on uh, medical innovation. Uh, they invented the first cardiac pacemaker. They invented the shingles vaccine. 
take an aspirin a day to ward off heart disease, sensors in the brain to move prosthetic devices, uh, first liver transplant, I could go on and on and on. But if it weren't for the VA, American medicine would be nowhere. So one of the things we did going to the VA is we, is we put that on steroids and we created a, um, uh, an innovation task force who was responsible for not only creating innovation, but also spreading the innovation uh, across the VA. That's awesome. A small, small world, but actually, um, Patrick Henshaw, he's class of 2008. He, um, actually came to visit Seattle yesterday. So we, we had coffee, but he was talking, I guess he used to work at Central Views and now is doing something called render in Cincinnati that is somehow associated with Centrifuge. Uh, but it's super, uh, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Small world. Um, but then transitioning a little bit to the VA, obviously, so people had their opinions about the VA prior to, um, you know, what it is today, you were, you know, tapped by President Obama and asked essentially to, to fix this. And, you know, he had some, some really, you know, great words um, to say. I mean, President Obama was quoted saying, what, what especially makes Bob the right choice to lead the VA now is his three decades of experience in building and managing one of the world's most recognized companies, Procter & Gamble. The VA is not a business, but is one of our largest departments, and the workload at the VH, the VHA alone is enormous. Bob is an ex, is an expert at making organizations better. So you oversaw ten billion dollars in restructuring while um, while at the VA. Like, what lessons did you learn at the at P and G that really allowed you to be successful um, at the VA? Well, when I when I first got the call uh, about serving at the VA, I thought, uh, gee, this must be God's plan because. Uh, here's a guy who went to West Point, served in the ASIC and Airborne Division as an infantryman, uh, never saw combat during my years of service, went to Procter & Gamble to learn about customer service, and then went to the largest medical system in the country with the most important client in the country, the veteran, uh, only, second only in the world to the UK medical system. So how could I take all of that learning, uh, put it together, in order to uh, uh, make the veteran uh, experience uh, better. So we brought in a, a technology that we used at Procter & Gamble called human-centered design. Um, we, we put the veteran at the center of everything we do, and then we journey mapped the veteran journey from the day that we raised our hands to be sworn in till the day we bury you in a VA cemetery then we looked at all of those touch points of the VA along that journey line. We call them moments that matter. And we asked veterans what they thought of how we were doing in those moments that matter. Uh, the scores were pretty sobering uh, because it had never been measured before. Uh, the scores were, were sobering and we had a lot of uh, re-engineering work to do. Part of the problem was whenever an organization is in crisis, whether it's private sector or public sector, it turns inward. It turns inward and it worries about its survival and it forgets about its customer. So what I had to do first and foremost was to put the veteran at the center of everything we do, not the bureaucracy, but the veteran. And, um, and that's why the journey mapping was so important. That's why the structure of the organization focused on the veteran was so important. And then, and then we just had to um, uh, give people the training uh, to do the right thing for veterans and to get build trust. We had to, we put together a 90 day plan and, 
the primary strategy of that plan was to rebuild, rebuild trust because we had lost trust when those veterans were waiting for care in Phoenix. And the only way to do that is, you know, when you have a, a large bureaucracy, it's very easy to criticize that bureaucracy. What I had to do was have them put my face with that bureaucracy and know that my heart was for the veteran and I was going to do everything I could and I was going to be accessible. I gave out my cell phone number publicly. The Washington Post published it for me. Uh, so I was getting calls from veterans and we tried to solve every veteran problem that we could. Um, and over time, we built trust. We built trust from uh, maybe the high 30%. Today, it's uh, nearing 90%. Um, and we did that by building capability and uh, by putting the veteran at the center of everything we do and by changing the culture from a rule-based culture to a principle-based culture. Yeah, I mean, I what, and I can speak, you know, firsthand on the improvements that we've seen through the VA over, over, especially during your tenure. Um, how, was it scary because of the reputation? Like, it's kind of a no-fail mission that, in some ways, you know, hadn't necessarily been done well for for a number of years. If you come in and and you don't do a good job, it's it's almost like a it's not like coming in at a company and failing. It's like coming in and kind of failing, you know, the veteran population in America that nobody really wants to be associated with. Right. Was that scary for you or? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's the epitome of Teddy Roosevelt's speech in Paris about the man in the arena. Um, you're in a very public position. People die in hospitals. Uh, any journalist wanting to win a, a Pulitzer prize or whatever for journalism, uh, we'll try to dig up things about the mistakes you made and why that person died. Uh, you're going to get knocked down. You're going to get bloodied. Uh, but it's it's a question for all of us. It's a question for all of us as West Pointers, as veterans. Uh, how do we want to live our lives? Do we want to be the person in the arena who gets bloodied, gets knocked down, gets up again? Uh, or do we want to be the person who stands on the outside of the ring as the critic? Um, and um, I've always wanted to be in the arena. But yeah, it was scary. Um, it's scary not so much for you. It's scary for your family because you're worried about your family with all the public criticism. There's always an opposition party in politics. Um, and so you're always going to be criticized. The benefit I had, uh, frankly, was I was working with my classmate, uh, Sloan Gibson, as the deputy secretary. And both of us had had successful private sector careers. Sloan had been um, the, uh, done a fantastic job as the CEO of the USO, um, basically doubled the giving in five years to the USO, built incredible capability, and neither one of us really needed the job. So we acted that way. We acted like we didn't need the job. We were going to do the right thing. We weren't politicking for any additional position. And I think that freed us up um, to do the right thing. And oftentimes, to call members of Congress and other politicians to task for being political about an issue that shouldn't be political. Yeah, I mean, it really shouldn't be, right? Because if there's anything that we need to do, it's, it's support support everybody who's um, really supported us um, through the years. Um, is there anything that you thought, you know, like where else do you think that the VA kind of needs to go? Like, what is the next generation of VA healthcare, you think, for the American veteran population? First of all, I think, uh, you know, the, the VA's role is oftentimes dictated by what goes on in the Department of Defense, which is, of course, dictated by the president and other decision makers who decide where we go to war, when we go to war. 
uh, an example of that is um, during my time as Secretary of the VA, I visited Vermont, um, a state with a National Guard. Uh, when I was in the Army, people joined the National Guard and the Reserves because they didn't want to go to Vietnam, whereas the Vermont National Guard had deployed eight times since 9-11, you know, um, and that just puts a tremendous burden um, on the VA. It's a, it's a great burden they have because that's what we want to do is take care of people, but um, just a tremendous burden. And um, as a result of that, we have to, we had to build a lot of capability we didn't have. We had to go to weekend hours. We had to hire more doctors. Uh, we had to build more clinics. Um, I think the future is deciding the balance between private sector care for veterans and public sector care. When I got to the VA, about 8% of appointments were done in the private sector. When I left the VA, about 20%, I think today about 30%. And it's really up to the secretary to work with Congress and say, look it, maybe we're gonna hold at 30% or maybe 35 or 40, I don't know what the number is. And, and so what we've got to do is we've got to invest in that 35, but we've also got to invest in the 65. We need to tell Congress where to invest the money in order to get the best network for veterans, both private sector and public sector. And those two sectors have to work together um, homogeneously uh, for the betterment of veterans. Uh, it's got to be a seamless transition from one to the other and back again. All right, it's time for our final segment, giving back. What what advice do you have for, you know, what would be the core piece of advice that you'd have for, you know, younger in their career veterans that are scaling um, either, you know, transitioned out or are scaling and, and trying to really make an impact and, and serve others? Um, what, what are the core things that have been kind of instrumental to your success that you wish you could share with others? Well, number one is, is, you know, the, my top leadership belief is have a purpose, figure out what your purpose in life is. Uh, don't go through life simply meandering from event to event uh, or reacting to your cell phone and other stimuli. Figure out what your purpose is. Uh, check in on your calendar. Make sure you're driving that purpose. Uh, that's number one. Number two would be don't stop learning. Um, I used to bring in, uh, I would train general managers in leadership at P&G. I'd have about 200 new general managers every year. Uh, I'd bring them in, I'd bring new hires in, and I'd have the new hires complain to the general managers about their archaic leadership. You know, they didn't know how to text message, they didn't know how to do certain things on the computer. And I'd stop it and say, okay, well, the question is 20 years from now, what's going to be the text message for the young person? Things constantly change. Things constantly evolve. As you get older, it gets harder and harder to learn new things. Develop the discipline now that when you hear a word, write it down. When you hear a concept, write it down. Then go back and research it and learn. Keep learning. Make yourself more valuable to your family and to your enterprise by continuing the learning. I think that's so important. And third, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention... Um, Help me to choose the harder right rather than easier wrong. Uh, that phrase from the West Point Cadet Prayer may be the most insightful phrase in the English language. Um, I've had a lot of experience in business. Businesses never start out to fail. Organizations don't start out to fail. But what happens is 
they do the wrong thing when it's small. And that small wrong thing leads to a larger wrong thing, which leads to a larger wrong thing, which leads to the downfall of the company. You know, in 1955, the first year of the Fortune 500, uh, uh, the top 50 companies, there are only nine companies still on that list. Uh, Procter & Gamble's one of them. And, um, and I think that, uh, you know, people just make small mistakes. They're willing to compromise a little bit, and it leads to the downfall of the company. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I feel like it's you know speaking of of learning, I feel like um, I've learned so much uh, in this time spent with you, and I could probably continue learning for hours if I if we you know had more time. But thank you so much for for being you know so gracious with your time joining us on this podcast, and also thank you for supporting. Thank you, Eddie. Really appreciate the support, Bob. Thank you so much. Happy to come back anytime. Awesome. Thank you, Eddie. Best wishes. Beat Navy. Beat Navy. Beat him. <laughs> Thank you for listening to On Point. Please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you're listening. It really helps us out. Also, subscribe to our newsletter at oldgradclub.com and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at oldgradclub. We'll see you on the next episode.